Hey, Nelson, alcoholic addict. Nelson is not my real name, but I am a real alcoholic and an addict. Uh, and this is my newsletter, LOL Sober. There is so much good stuff to read about sobriety um, and how to get there, how to get sober, stay sober. So much good reading, so many good books. Um, I find all of the 12-step program literature to be incredibly valuable um, as a first step into getting sober. And it's really good writing, in my opinion. I am a writer. That's my job. And I, I routinely am at a meeting where we're reading something written in 1942 or 1951 or 1972. And it's it hits me that it's hard to fathom that the founding members of these programs had such brilliant vision for solutions to addiction and then they write them in a way that that for the most part holds up really well so but recently i was at a meeting where we read the first half of how it works from the big book one week and then the second half of how it works the next week and i gotta say as we read those 13 pages it's hard to beat that stretch uh as far as um just the backbone of how to get sober, how to stay sober, and then also just how to how to figure out if you're working a good program or not. You can use those pages to examine that. And as someone who's been sober for a little while, I found the second half especially um, to be such a good way to examine where I'm at in recovery. And the second half of that section is pages 64 to 71. You know, my kids take a lot of standardized tests to kind of measure where they're at in their education. Um, and it <laughs> made me think that if sober adults had standardized testing to evaluate ourselves, it might be based on pages 64 to 71. I got to say, it's pretty good. The first chunk of how it works introduces the steps and then um, digs into steps one, two, and three. That's essential reading, in my opinion. It's the foundation for which everything in my recovery program is built. It, it really is the foundation. But then from, from 64 to 71, we get into resentments at step four. And the book makes the case that resentments are the most dangerous thing in sobriety. One paragraph flat out says, resentment is the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. That's a lot to digest, you know. What about what about all the other things that can trip up your sobriety? Like a loved one dies or you get laid off at work or you get cancer or some other illness, you get divorced. Nope. We're being told that resentment is number 1 on that list. And I think that's right in my experience. During my roughest patches of sobriety, there's always been an undercurrent of resentment. Um, it has just been the gasoline in my toughest stretches of sober time. Somebody uh, shared a similar belief at the meeting um, that I was at when we read that section recently and also made the point that some of these other things that can derail so sobriety, like I mentioned above, like losing your job, for instance, they can they include a lot of resentment in there too. And so... You know, you might think it's that you lost your job or, or um, somebody treated you really badly. Um, that probably plays a part in it, but so does the resentment that comes along with it. And so that, that kind of hit home for me. I 
also really like the chart that they included in this reading. It's it's big and clunky and weird to read out loud at a meeting. I always hate when it's coming around the room and I, <laughs> please don't make me read that chart. I don't know how to read it out loud. Um, but I have found that chart to be the single most specific, most beneficial piece of instructional material in recovery literature. I think we get lots of good guidance and suggestions for all the steps. I think they're really thorough and great. But with step four in the big book, it is very meticulously mapped out with, an, with examples and everything. Um, it, I found it's just a perfect blueprint for how to sort through a resentment or 10. Um, last but not least in that section, I focused most of my thinking on the, on a phrase that comes in the middle. A, and that phrase is, it is plain that a life that includes deep resentment leads only to futility and unhappiness. I'll say it again. It's plain that a life that includes deep resentment leads only to futility and unhappiness. Wow. First of all, there's a lot to unpack around the idea of resentment versus deep resentment. That word's interesting, deep resentment. The way I interpret it is that resentment is a pretty normal part of the human condition and something that everybody has and that everybody has to work through. But deep resentment is its own special category. Um, to me, deep resentments are the ones that, that sit in your stomach for long periods of time. And they eat away at your spirituality. And a lot of those are really tricky because they probably have some justification. When I have had deep resentment against someone, it's never like 100% my problem, you know, that caused it. Um, so a lot of those, they have some justification hidden underneath. But even those ones, they're all poison, man. They really are. I also like how that sentence doesn't say that if you have deep resentments, you will drink. It says deep resentment leads to futility and unhappiness. I've had moments of sobriety where I did not drink or do drugs and I did not even want to, but I'm I was spinning my wheels. I was miserable and I'm causing misery with my attitude and behaviors because I'm running on resentment. It's a terrible way to live. As the book says, it it's you know, life is futile, futile, and unhappy. In my life, I recently um, <laughs> I recently spent a few days with my in-laws, and let me just, just say it was a little bumpy, to say the least. It was a long drive, lots of people, lots of conversation, lots of unwanted political conversation. Um, but it wasn't terrible. I can laugh about it, I think. Nobody had a stage four disease of any kind. Um, there was a lot of laughter that went along with the raised eyebrows during the uncomfortable parts. And it was probably 50-50, good and bad, but I had started to collect resentments. And when I collect resentments, I collect a lot of them. So that means for me, I didn't see the whole thing as 50-50, good and bad. Um, I saw it as 50-50 when we got there, and then I saw it as 60-40 bad the next by the next day and then by the end 
by the end, I was questioning all of my relationships with loved ones because I was seeing everything as just a hundred percent debacle full of people just screwing me over and acting bad and blah, blah, blah. And the truth is that there was some bad behaviors, but also lots of good ones, lots of love exchanged between my kids and their relatives. Um, and they don't get to see them too often. Does, does one of the people I hung out with think that the th the, the theory that the moon landing isn't real and that the moon itself might not be real? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe I was involved in that conversation. <laughs> yeah. It's not that the moon landing was fake. It was that it was fake because there isn't a moon, which I had not heard before. Uh, but I have to let that go. Walk away with the good portion of how the, how the, um, how the week went and, there's a version of this situation where I hold on to a deep resentment about what a crappy trip this was, and it just rots out my insides. And I can't do that. It's not true either. It was a great trip, you know, with some hiccups. And that's life, right? Could be great with some hiccups. So back to the reading. I'm so glad I read that section of the book at a meeting. It really brings everything into focus, and I can move on to, you know, from a bumpy road trip without it holding on to any deep resentments. Um, and in fact, you know, one good way to look at this is now I have plenty of time to read up on how NASA might be faking the existence of the moon. I have not considered it till now, so thanks for letting me share.